No, no children's worship. There you go. <clears throat> that means we need to get on our rocket and ride, right? So uh, there's no children's worship. So I'm uh, going to look today at uh, the end of, or um, well, we looked at the Beatitudes. We're going to look at the rest, begin uh, looking at the rest of the Sermon on the Mount uh, today from Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Familiar text, uh, one uh, that uh, even if you've never been to church in your life, I'm certain you've heard the salt of the earth and light of the world, right? So um, in light of that, let me pray, and we'll jump in this morning. Lord, uh, we thank you today that um, as we come to you and we hear these remarkable words that your people are the light of the world, that your people are the salt of the earth, that you will uh, startle us. Just as you startled uh, your audience, your congregation, that day on the mountain. And so I pray that you would help us not to be confused, uh, not to confuse salt and light uh, with power and popularity, not to confuse it with uh, our own ideas of influence or impact, but rest uh, in your declarations uh, that we read here this morning. And so would you bless us as we do this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Matthew 5, 13 through 16, the text is in the bulletin, also up on uh, the screens uh, behind me. This is God's word. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So um, one of the things that you have to see about this uh, text right off the bat is that uh, Jesus is declaring something to an audience that more than likely uh, does not believe what he is saying. Because uh, we are so acculturated and so familiar with, of course I'm the light of the world. <laughs> of course I'm the salt of the earth. Right? When, when Jesus says this to those people who are gathered there on that mountainside, I'm certain they looked over their shoulders to think, who's he talking about? Do you know, outside of the 12 disciples, do you know anybody else who was there that day? You heard of them? Biographies? Great battles won, great political decisions, great things that they've done? No. We don't. Very obscure. Um, people that uh, God honors, uh, who we will see one day in heaven with crowns of glory. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, we tend to think of these words as, as especially in a media-saturated and social media-saturated era, that um, this means something 
with a lot of notoriety, certainly with fame, right? So when Jesus stands up there and he says, you're the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth, I'm certain those obscure people living there in the first century in Palestine in places we've never heard of or never been to and, and, and names of people we will never know, they were shocked. And it was probably hard for them to believe that. It was probably hard for them to, to come to grips with that. Now, now in, in, like I said, in our day and age, the way we think of ourselves is, you know, we, you know our, our self-esteem is so fragile and our self-concept is so fragile that we need to be pumped up all the time. And so, so to hear these words like, we're, of course we are those things. <laughs> and so I'll never forget uh, uh, being uh, at a... Um, at a pep rally for the little, tiny, little 1,200-person college I went to uh, in North Carolina. And our football coach, who was an idiot, got up in front of the whole student body and said, tomorrow in Richardson Field, which was our stadium, and let me tell you about Richardson Field, where I went to college. Richardson Field... uh, when I took my son there to visit, to try to get him to go to my alma mater, he walked out and to, looked at the football stadium and said, my high school stadium is bigger than this. And he was right. <laughs> uh, he's, this, he actually said something much more insulting. But uh, uh, this coach got up there and he's all pumped up and he looked at us and he said, the most important football game in America is being played in Richardson Field tomorrow. I don't know, I think we were playing Bucknell or somebody like that. I, you know, not, Bucknell's a great school. But was that the most important football game? Not even to me. And I wasn't the school, I went there. I didn't really care that much about it, right? So to hear these words from Jesus, we need to enter into a little bit more of the context of what's going on there. Um, Here's Jesus who's just burst upon the scene. Really, this is very early in his ministry, right? And so uh, he's gathered uh, his 12 disciples and he goes up onto a mountain because there's a crowd of curious people and onlookers and that kind of stuff who are coming along. And he gives these words that have reverberated through history. But there in that audience, in that first time of people hearing that, I'm certain that uh, very few of those people believed him. Or if they did, they certainly didn't believe uh, what he had in mind for them when, when he said those words. Because you see, the thing that we have to see is we, we tend to think of people who are the salt of the earth, people who are the light of the world, have some sort of a reputation, right? That, that, uh, uh, that we can all rally around and say, look at, look at that person. But what Jesus has already done here in uh, the Sermon on the Mount by giving us the Beatitudes is he's told us some descriptors of what the salt of the earth and the light of the world look like. What he's done there is he said that the poor in spirit, the mourning, the meek, the hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and the persecuted, these are... The kind of people that are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. 
And so as you, as you think about that, you know, it's, it's important for us to, to kind of to, to come to grips with that, right? Because the way we tend to, to think about that is that it means exercising some sort of power, some sort of extra, you know, political or otherwise to accomplish the things that we want to accomplish. And what Jesus is saying is, no, look, look at these Beatitudes, look at these descriptors, and those are the things that describe who you are. And the other thing to notice about this, you, if you've been around churches very much at all, you have probably heard sermons on this. And what you heard Jesus saying is, you know, you need to do this to be the salt of the earth, and you need to do this to be the light of the world. He doesn't say that. He says, you are. You are. Now, we are wrapped around the axle in our world today about identity, who we are. And where do we get our identity, you know? Well, let me tell you something, church. Here's your identity. Jesus Christ, your Lord, says that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. As obscure and as small and as untalented and as weak and as broken as you are, you are no more uh, obscure or weak or broken than these people who heard these words. And Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so if he just says that of these people, it's true of us. Now he does say, you know, hey, listen, you know, uh, salt that loses its saltiness is not worth very much. And nobody lights a lamp and sticks it under a basket. Those things are true. But the fact of the matter is the salt is still there, even though it's being trampled on by the world. And the light is still shining, even if it's got a lampshade. So the first things first that you have to understand about this is, that, and this is always the way the gospel works, that, that our identity, that, that these things that Jesus says are who we are, precede any activity, precede any work, precede anything else that we do. And so what we, what we hear Jesus saying is that because of his work, because he has atoned for our sins, because he has given us his spirit, because he has given us his gospel, because he has left us here in the world, these things are true of us. And, and you know, sometimes the light shines brighter than others, and sometimes the salt is saltier than others, but the fact of the matter is, that's our identity. That's who we are. Now, a couple of things to note about this is uh, for us to understand what salt and light are and, and how they functioned in this culture. Now, when you hear the word salt, you think of that thing on your table, refined, crystallized, or maybe, maybe you're fancy. You know, you've got, I mean, we, I grew up in a, in a house where we had uh, salt in the little um, tube, Morton's right? And then we had some other salt that we used that I'll tell you about in a little bit, but, but that was, that was, that's, you know, that's, that's what uh, salt was. But now, you know, we've got Himalayan salt. It's pink and you grind it. You got that salt? And we've got uh, uh, sea salt and we've got, uh, we got all kinds of salt, right? I mean, I, I'm like, uh, we got salt flakes, flaky salt. We got, in, in the first century, that's not the way salt was. You, if you wanted salt, 
most people, and it wasn't that, there wasn't that much to be had, but most people, the people that heard the Sermon on the Mount, they would have gone out to a body of water that was salty water, and they would have scraped up the white residue that's there on the shore, and that's, that's their salt. And that's why Jesus could say, you know, if, it's, if it doesn't taste right and it's not doing its work, you just throw it out in the, in, in the ground out there because it really was nothing but dirt to begin with. Right? And so, so as, as we hear about that, we, we, you have to kind of begin to, to, to think a little bit about that. But, but even more than that, you know, as you think about what uh, salt was for, uh, salt certainly tastes good. Trust me, as someone who can't eat salt, I hear it every day. I didn't salt the, the, the soup, sweetie. I didn't, there's no salt in that dish because, you know, when you have high blood pressure, um, salt is your enemy. And, and it's hard to eat things without salt. You know, popcorn, man, that's just one of the many things that I'm like, and peanuts, Oh, I love red skin peanuts. And without salt, they're, they're just a lot of fiber. But uh, the, the, fact, the, the, the fact of the matter is, uh, in the first century, salt was life. And why is that? Because they don't have freezers and refrigerators. They don't even have ice. If you've ever seen that movie with Harrison Ford, it's a dumb movie, don't watch it, The Mosquito Coast, where he's a missionary and he says that, you know, ice is kind of like the foundation of civilization. There's, there's a bit of truth to that in some ways because, because until we had refrigeration, the only way you could preserve things is with salt. And let's be clear about this, right? Salt keeps dead things from getting worse. It's not just something that makes things taste good. We put salt on meat that's dead. Now, I know it's hard to think about your bacon being dead. I know that. I know it's hard to think about your ham being dead, but it's dead. And, and, and you would know it was dead if you didn't have salt on it. When I was a kid, we would kill pigs every year. I'm not going to get into the gross details of that. But when we would take the bacon, my, my dad would uh, take salt and pepper and brown sugar and mix it all up, and we would coat our, 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 our meat in that double sack it in feed sacks, burlap sacks, and hang it up in the smokehouse. I thought that's the way it all came. I didn't, you go to the grocery store and you see that stuff that they called bacon in there, and I'm like, wait, bacon's a slab this big. It's not that little, whatever that stuff is there, right? But you put the salt on it to keep, to keep, to keep it from going worse. Uh, the the uh, Scottish missionary, David Livingston, when he was in Africa, one of the most profound uh, workers for the gospel ever, uh, when he died, he died in Africa, and he wanted his heart cut out of his body and buried there in Africa. And so they did that for him. They, they took his heart out of his body, and they, they buried it there in Africa. And then they, they packed him in salt and sent him back. Uh, to England to be buried, the rest of him, 
right? So that's the thing you have to see about that. That's what, that's what salt uh, uh, does. It keeps things that are rotting from rotting even worse. And light in a world without electricity is precious. You know, we don't think very much about how, what it would, our lives would be like without electricity, do we? We don't, we don't think very much about what, how our perception of night and darkness would be with, because we just flip a light on or we got street lights everywhere. We got flashlights, we got headlights, we got, we got lights on our cars, we got lights everywhere. If you're poor in the first century, you probably have a couple of lamps about this big, little clay lamps that you put a little oil in and you light the end of it and it's got a flame on it about that big. And that's your light. That's how you see to get around in your house. And you think, well, what about candles? I don't know if they had candles back then. They did, certainly don't smell as good as your candles do, but they... they uh, only rich people really could afford candles up until a few uh, uh, hundred years ago. And so, so light was a, was, was a, a really important uh, part of life. We, uh, a few years ago, the great uh, Super Bowl uh, ice storm right before the, the last play of the third quarter in the Super Bowl, I don't remember which one it was, but our power went out. And it went out, and it was out for... Um, Five days, killed every one of our tropical fish and uh, was just a, a nightmare. And Marty and I noticed something about ourselves that every evening about 4.30, we started having anxiety attacks about it's getting dark and we don't have any light in this house. And this is hard. So when Jesus says that you're the light of the world, you, nobody puts a light under a basket. You know, we, we have a problem with light that it's too bright, right? That's why we use lampshades. Now, lampshades don't make any sense if it's dark in your house all the time and all you got is this much light. You need to let that light shine as much as you can. Otherwise, you can't see anything. So what, what the, the point, and, and then these, the, when he uses the example of the city on the hill, cities that were built out of limestone uh, in the ancient Near East could shine literally when the sun shone on them so you could see them from miles away. But what you have to see about that is, is that those lights are, were precious and they were important and they were hard to come by. And so what, what, what Jesus is, is saying here is, listen, you know, as salt, we get our saltiness. We get our ability to preserve a world that is in trouble from Jesus Christ. That it doesn't, we don't create our own saltiness. We don't suddenly decide that we're going to be salty. Jesus declares that about us. And Jesus even goes on to say that he's the light of the world and that as such, as we walk through this world as the light of the world, we're simply reflecting the light that he has already shown and that he's already given to us. But you also have to see here that hidden in these statements about the people of Jesus is a statement about the world. If the world needs salt, that means it's dead and rotting. And if the world needs light, that means it's in darkness. But it's not just that we shine a light in the darkness, and it's not just that we preserve that which is dead, that God has a purpose here. Uh, and that, 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 that the saltiness that we exercise here is God's restraining against uh, the sin and the death that is so prevalent in our world. And the light uh, that we shine is simply a reflection of the light of the glory of God. And it's not just so that you can see the world, but so that you can step into the light and see the world more clearly than you would otherwise. 
And so it's a pretty powerful thing for us to think about that, right? So, so the world here is dead and dark, and God gets glory when we simply are who he says we are. Now, here's, here's the thing uh, to, to try to think about that. So, so if, if Jesus says, I'm the salt of the earth, and so I have this role to play as being a preservative of, of keeping which is, and, and restraining evil, and, and I have a, a, this role to play of shining a light, where, where can I go to figure out how to do that? Does that mean I need to pack up and, and go somewhere else? Does that mean I have to, uh, uh, you know, be much more dynamic than I am? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It simply means that wherever you are, wherever you work, where you live, in your neighborhood, the gospel's true. It's not just true here on Sunday mornings. It's true. And if it's true, then you are who he says you are. And so when you take your neighbor a pie who's sick, or you go and rake your friend's leaves because they can't, or when someone at work says something and you tell them that you'll pray for them, even though you've heard them say repeatedly at work how dumb religious people are. When you begin to do those things, then what is happening is we are beginning to demonstrate what it is that Jesus is getting at here. You don't have to be famous to be salt and light. In fact, that the people who are salt and light that we see in the scriptures aren't trying to be salt and light. They're simply trying to, to live and to follow Jesus Christ, to act as if their sins have been atoned for, to act as if they have the Holy Spirit, to act as if the truth of the gospel is alive in them. You want to see who's the salt and light and that Jesus uh, 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 demonstrates to us. You, you look at it in the very opening chapters of the Gospel of Luke. Who's, who's, the, who's the salt of the earth? Well, we read in the days of Herod, king of Judea, a pretty dark time. And how ironic that it begins, the story of John the Baptist begins with Herod, because Herod's family will have something to do with John's family, right? There was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. There you go. There's the salt of the earth. Working away in obscurity in first century Palestine. And God is about to bring the greatest man ever until Jesus through these people, these old people that outside of their friends and family and the people in their village. Nobody knows anything about them. And if John the Baptist weren't their son, you wouldn't know anything about him either. Salt and light. Simply doing what God's called them to do where they are. Next slide. Uh, we also read, when, after Jesus was born, his parents take him to the temple. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. He's salt and light by waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said... Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, 
that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. The Greek is a little garbled there. The only thing that's really clear is she's 84. Um, Wait, didn't God get the memo that the important demographic is 18 to 35. Now, certainly Mary is probably even not, in, not even in that demographic. She's probably even younger than that demographic. But she's obscure. And here we have these old people. Old people. 84, trust me. 84, that's old. Um, and it's really old in, in the first century. And then as a widow, until she, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day, and coming up to that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. Listen, here's the thing. God's taking these obscure people who are the salt of the earth, who are the light of the world, and he's doing his work through them. You see, we need to be disabused of the notion that that's a special class of Christian that is that. The church exists this way. The people of God exist this way in obscurity. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing. Let me say again, when you pray for someone, when you speak a word of grace or truth to someone... When you take somebody some, a meal because they need it or you serve somebody in some way, when you tutor a child in Jesus' name, when you hand some food to a poor person in Jesus' name, when you stand up for the rights of the oppressed in Jesus' name, even if standing up for them is small and seemingly insignificant, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. I have a colleague, another pastor who uh, pastors in, uh, in Western Virginia, and he wrote this a couple of years ago about a family in his church. There was an elderly ch- couple in our church who recently passed away, whom I love dearly. They grew up in Holland during the Nazi occupation and as teenagers participated in the Dutch resistance as non-combatants. Now, this sounds like, whoa, this sounds really like a big thing. Well, look, look, at, look at how they were salt and light. The husband narrowly escaped being shipped off to a German work camp when he was misdiagnosed with pleurisy. Throughout the war, they were also committed to their local reformed congregation and faithfully attended each Sunday. They told me how German soldiers would often come to worship and sit in the back. I asked them what they did, and they replied, nothing. We let them worship. As far as we know, these soldiers were Christians like us, not wanting to be in Holland any more than we wanted them there. But at the same time, while peacefully worshiping side by side with their Nazi occupiers, their congregation did what they could to hide and help their Jewish neighbors to escape. My friends lived in a difficult time, much more difficult than anything we face now, but they modeled what it means to be in this world and not of it. They preached the gospel to all alike, keeping their own church aloof 
from the shifting political fortunes of their days. And if you know anything about World War II, you know that the political fortunes in Holland shifted and sometimes by, literally by the day. At the same time, they stood against injustice and took great risks to call out evil, refusing to ally with the prevailing earthly powers. See, I think that's the thing that we have to see there is because sometimes we think the only, the only way we can be salt and light is by allying ourselves with what seems flashy and uh, impressive and famous. When really, it's simply believing the gospel in a place, in a time, with a particular group of people. Tish Harrison Warren writes this, We love people universally, the world, by loving the particular people we know and can name, and we love the world by loving a particular place in it. You are the salt of the earth and the light of the world on your street, on your road, in your building, in your classroom in your office, in front of your computer, in your house. Because Jesus says you are. And here's the thing that makes this so rich, is that Jesus finishes this section off by saying, people will see what you do. We like that. But they'll give the glory to your Father. And why that's so important to us is because sometimes people might not actually see what you're doing and they might not actually be able to appreciate that what you're doing is actually preserving the world from rotting even more or shining light into darkness, but that what you're simply doing is living faithfully before the Lord and before your community. And God gets glory. Jesus said at the end of the age, people will be lined up in front of him. And uh, there are going to be people who are going to say, didn't we do all these things for you, Lord? And he's going to say, you know, I didn't know you. And then he's going to look at another group of people and he's going to say, wow, you were visiting me and you did this and you did that and you did this. And they're like, when do we do that? You see, it's not walking about saying, I am going to consciously be the light of the world in this person's life today, or I am consciously going to be the salt of the earth here in this. It's simply following Jesus and allowing his saltiness and his light in us to be reflected to the people around us, and he'll get the glory. As we come to the table today, it's a good reminder to 